Welcome to Wild Secrets, brought to you by Wild Talk, Australia's only free counselling service for people working and volunteering with native wildlife. Wild Talk is a registered charity, so all donations are tax deductible. See our website for details. In these episodes, we share ups and downs of working with wildlife, acknowledging while extremely rewarding can bring heartache. There may be tears, laughter, swears, and just a smidgen of learning. I'm your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Wild Secrets. Dr. Debbie Saunders is a researcher, conservationist, and businesswoman based in Canberra, Australia. Her business looks at providing wildlife drones to track and monitor wildlife. My guest today is Dr. Debbie Saunders from Wildlife Drones. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to you. You're, you're, you're sort of a little bit different from quite a few of my guests in so much as you're very much in the business realm now, but you started out in conservation and you still are in conservation, but you are providing drones to find difficult to find wildlife. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you said, I'm, I was previously, well, I still am at the moment, <laughs> for a few more weeks, a researcher um, at the Australian National University. And I'm also a member of the Swift Power Recovery Team. And I have been for about 20 years or so. And um, so the Swift Parrot has been a, a core focus of my work for a very long time. It's a real embedded part of my life. Um, and it's it's been an amazing opportunity because I get, have been able to go around and my job was to figure out where they were going and what they were doing during the winter time and um, so I did I did a lot of this research and I worked a lot with community groups um, there's volunteer surveys that happen a couple of times a year and it's one of the longest running volunteer survey programs in the country um, and and that's been really instrumental in guiding the conservation of the species and and helping me with my research as well but one thing that um became evident over time was that we knew, we, we worked out where they were going and what they needed in terms of habitat, but we had no idea how they were moving across the landscape and how they got from A to B. And all we know is it's really dynamic. So it's unlike the typical migrations that you hear um, of birds in Europe or, or America, where they, you know, they say, oh, they go the same place every year, backwards and forwards, like clockwork kind of mm. thing. Um, and in Australia, that's just not possible because it's it's just so variable with the droughts and the floods and all the rest, which we've all been experiencing very firsthand recently. Yes. Um, so you imagine these wild animals also have to respond to those same cues. So I wanted to come up with a, a new way of being able to track these small birds that can't be tracked with GPS satellite tags, they're too big. Um, but I didn't want to reinvent the tag because these little tags are used all around the world. And I was like, okay, this is a standard tag. How about we just increase the efficiency with which we can find these tags across really big landscapes? Mm. Um, and so that was when the sort of the idea of using a drone um, for tracking of wildlife came about. Mm. Um, but this was a very long time ago now. So it was yeah, about 2008 or so I had this oh, idea. So, so it was before <laughs> um, drones were groovy. Oh, absolutely. Hardly anyone knew what they were. And and so trying to find someone to work with me who I just wanted someone who knew drones so we could focus on the radio track inside of it mm. um, was quite challenging and there weren't many options. So 
Anyway, and it took ages to get anyone to believe in the idea. I get funding for it. And eventually we did. And we proved it was possible. And we were the first people in the world. So, uh, you know, sort of changed the trajectory of my career, if you like, because then people started contacting me and asking, you know, how can, can I have one of these things too? I really, <laughs> I have the same problem. <laughs> and I was like, I have no idea. Like, you actually don't want the one that we just developed because it like got heaps of problems. Like, <laughs> mm. so, um, so then I, I set out on a journey to overcome all these challenges that we discovered and then um, come up with a product that other people could use anywhere in the world to track whatever wildlife they needed to track. So those first those, those first drones were very much a sort of, you know, trial and error and just sort of all the errors that they come with that. They were very tiny and very expensive. So yeah. I think the, the one they bought for that project was, I don't know, like 40,000 euros or something back then. And it only flew for eight minutes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So that's not it has really... dramatically changed in that time. Yeah. So... Can you describe what a swift parrot looks like? Because I've, I thought I saw some, and then it turned out they were red rumps. So, what does a swift parrot look like? Yeah, sure. So they look very similar to the lorikeets that people might be more familiar with. Um, so they have the largely green parrot, but if you get a, a close, like a bright green, um, if you get a close look at them, they've also got red around the face. They've got red under the wings, under the tail. If you get a really good look, you can see they've got this golden edging along every uh, one of their flight feathers. They've actually got a bluish purplish tail um, and, and touches of blue and red on the head. Um, sorry, blue and yellow on the head as well. So they're a little bit bigger than a budgie. Um, but oh, the not, it's quite small. Yes, yes. And smaller than a rainbow lorikeet, which is probably the one that most people are familiar with. Mm. Um, rainbow lorikeets are quite big and buffy compared to a swift <laughs> parrot. The swift parrot... Um, they are a real character of a bird, and but they are really passive generally. Mm. And so if there's other larger, more aggressive nectivorous birds around, like rainbow lorikeets and red wattle birds or what have you, they will often drive swift parrots away from the food um, mm. as they're defending it. So, mm. um, yeah, quite small. They weigh about 70, 75 grams um, all up. But we have actually um, caught some as part of a bird research project really late in the winter season and they were over 90 grams so they're looking at putting on you know close to like 30 percent or more of their body weight in fat in order to migrate back down to tasmania so they only breed in tasmania in the tall right. old growth forests and they migrate north for the winter following yeah. um, the nectar flows in the gum trees so they stay in Australia for their whole right. life cycle they don't yes. sort of go further up or no just no. in Australia yeah yeah and what's the distribution of them? So they breed in Tasmania, but what, what would the distribution north be and, you know, over to the Yeah, so as far as going north, um, the furthest north of the records is up around Harvey Bay um, in Queensland, but um, more commonly in sort of south, further south, um, so maybe around Brisbane, Gold Coast area, mm. um, right along the coast of New South Wales from the north to the south coast, um, also right along the western slopes of New South Wales. Um, and a lot of the core area, which was known a lot before I came on board, like the goldfields, the central area of Victoria is, is really core habitat for them as well. Mm. Um, they do extend as well, they used to extend as far west into South Australia, but most of the habitat has gone. Um, so there's been a contraction there, um, but they do still go all the way up the north to Queensland. 
Right. Okay. So quite big. <laughs> yeah, quite big, but and <laughs> long distances. Bird. Yeah, long distances <laughs> to be to be flapping. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in in the time that you've been working with them, have you seen a decrease or increase in numbers? Oh, it's terrible. Um, they're they're on a rapid track to extinction, um, which is pretty pretty hard to bear. Given I spent most of my life trying to stop that from happening, mm. um, it's yeah they're they're on track to go extinct before my kids finish school, um, which is quite quite terrible um, mm. on many respects, not just for that species, but for the ecosystems that they occur in and mm. all the rest of it, for the resilience of our world. Um, and the the criminal thing about that is that, you know, we know why and largely it's habitat loss. Mm. Um, there's other factors as well, like predation, right, introduced predators and things where there is also habitat loss associated with that. Um, and so these things are preventable. Um, and yet uh, the policy of the government is driving that continued decline, essentially. Mm. So what, what is really amazing about this bird is that they are so resilient. For my PhD research, I looked at um, historical artworks, actually, that was some of the, the most obvious ways that this species was documented. From the first fleet, this species was painted um, and it was also, you know, shot and, and painted in, you know, hangings of birds and there are descriptions of people eating parrots and things um, in, in their range as well. So there was all mm. these amazing little anecdotes and imagery or whatever and I pulled that together for my PhD just to set the mm. scene for what this species has endured mm. um, and ever since European settlement pretty much you know Sydney um, you know down in Hobart and then you've got the gold fields the gold fields were obliterated and that's mm. their core box iron bark woodland the fact that they can you know that they have survived until now is quite miraculous and mm. it it really shows that they are very resilient if you give them a chance mm. but that loss has continued and continued and those stepping stones are getting further and further afield. You're getting bushfires impacting on it as well as the, the habitat loss. And the shifting in the flowering cycles is now something that we know nothing about. It's going to be crucial for so many pollinators across the mm. country and yet we know nothing about mm. that sort of thing. Um, so I think, um, sorry, I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but they, no, they have an incredibly resilient species um, mm. and they do have the ability to adapt but there's a there's a limit to what mm. they can achieve. They fatten up Absolutely. and they fly, but if they do not find the resources they need, they they simply can't keep going. If you don't have a petrol station to fill up your car, you need to it keep stops. going. You're stuck, mm. um, you know, and it, that's the situation that they're in. Mm. So it is um, it's quite depressing to be honest. Yes. It, it's really really disheartening um, because I have tried to influence forest policy for years, and I've tried to influence it from within government, from outside government, um, through community groups, talking to politicians, um, you know, just getting general enthusiasm in the community and, and getting people's eyes on the ground. And it's all really important, but um, it's it's really disheartening that mm -hmm. I have not been unable to influence that policy to date. Mm -hmm. You're talking about, um, about, you know, from the, you know, first fleet with them, you know, being eaten. I remember my mum, um, and I still, I still have her Mrs. Beaton's book of household management, which is about, you know, <laughs> six inches thick. And there's an Australian section in there. It's one from the UK, but there's an Australian section in there that has um, parrot pie. 
a recipe for carrot pie. Yes, exactly, carrot pie. In there. And I remember as a child looking at that and thinking, they do what? (laughs) (laughs) That's horrific. Why would you do that? They're so cute. And I don't know if they were king parrots or whether, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they weren't fussy about what type of parrot they were putting in their pie. No. Um, Yeah, but it was, I, I, I always, I clearly remember 12 green parrots. It could have been swift parrots. <laughs> yeah. It might yeah, take not, 12 of them to fill a pie. They're not very big. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just, it's just one of those weird things. It's just one of those things that's always stuck with me. Mm. And I just remember thinking, and the other the other one that I always remember was um, kangaroo tail. Yep. Stew. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, what, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> Anyway, uh, but I still, mm. yeah, and I still, I, to, to be honest, I still think like that whenever I see people doing, doing and saying things that aren't showing any kind of compassion or any kind of understanding of how important our flora and fauna is to our survival. Mm. You know, yes, and and it's, it's interesting, sort of on a business perspective. You know, I'm needing to look at, you know, what is the market for protecting biodiversity. Um, and it's so hard to quantify this in terms of like in terms of investors wanting to see that you're able, you've got a market that you can address and it's mm. worthwhile investing in this kind of a business. Mm. Um, and there's increasing number of reports from you know United Nations and the World Economic Forum very clearly highlighting that biodiversity loss is one of the top five impact risks to our global economy. Mm. And yet very little is actually being done about it, like seriously mm. being done. Mm. There's other reports showing just how underfunded it is, you know, like it needs $900 billion to reverse it and get it to where we need it to be. At the moment, there's around about like $150 billion maybe mm. on a but global scale. But isn't that like $150 billion less than Elon Musk was planning on spending to buy Twitter? I, yeah, it's just the scale is, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. So there, I mean, there is, there is the resources to throw the money at it, but there's, I I think there's a lack of will. Exactly. Yeah. Which is really sad. And I think that will, you know, I'm, well, I'm only hoping that, hoping that that would change because it it will become essential Mm. when, when, when people are actually, well, people are already starting to realise that this is not just some nice thing to do. It's a crucial part of a functioning planet that Mm. we get this right. Mm, absolutely. So you've been working with endangered species um, and what other conservation projects have you done? Oh, look, I've, um, I've, I've done a lot of work, you know, work, paid work um, as an environmental consultant. I started out um, doing impact assessments. I found that pretty challenging because you go and see some magnificent places and know that unless you find something or even if you do find something, it might still get bowled over. And the regulations really aren't that great um, mm. in terms of protecting things, especially swift parrots. They get mm. dis, they get dismissed easily because they're migratory, which is completely um, inappropriate. Mm. Um, and then I was fortunate to, to get a job in National Parks and Wildlife Service, which was running the recovery program for the Swift Parrot. And that was fabulous. I got to engage with community groups right across um, east coast of Australia um, and get them all, you know, impassioned about going out mm. and actually giving them the skills to identify <clears throat> what a Swift Parrot looks like or, more importantly, what they sound like because mm. actually their, their call is really quite unique and it's much easier to hear them than it is to identify them by sight. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so I have been involved in all that. And then I went and turned that into a research project as a PhD. But um, before all of this, like when I was a student at university, or even when I was a teenager, I, I volunteered for the wildlife rescue group um, locally. Mm. And I was just fascinated by wildlife. And so I volunteered for research projects. Um, radio tracking possums was my first um, my first research project that I volunteered for. Then I ended up running my own projects on that topic. But whenever I have traveled, I have always traveled around doing volunteer work. So wherever I go, I go to volunteer for a wildlife organization. And then I kind of put my holiday around that. Mm. <laughs> um, so I've, you know, been to different places in Australia and, and just gone and, and helped out with those projects. But I've also been up to Papua New Guinea um, and, and volunteered on some bird research and tree kangaroo research up there. I've been to Costa Rica where I went to a cloud forest and tried to help them set up a conservation monitoring program. Um, and, you know, they all entail their own complete suite of challenges. <laughs> they sound great, but they're really, you know, it's a really tricky situations, but, yes. you know, amazing experiences. Was Costa Rica uh, quite potentially quite dangerous to go there? No, I didn't feel like it was dangerous. Um, okay. New Guinea was probably, Papua New Guinea was probably, well, what people were more worried about me than I was about me, I think. But, mm. um, no, in Costa Rica, um you know, probably sexual harassment was much more of a, a prevalent thing than, um, than you know, other sort of violence or what have yeah. you. Um, no, I, I was literally in this remote cloud forest living in this half rundown shack pretty much by myself and then tourists would come each day and go on tours in, in the reserve right. and I would just, I was trying to help them set up a monitoring program so the, the tour guides could actually record what they were seeing and we put out markers. But we had to work with whatever materials we could scrounge up. So I was like digging underneath the buildings, looking at what scraps of wood there were so we could make these yeah, stakes around the trails and and then had a record book where they could write everything down and what have you. So, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're quite adept at, you know, going with the flow and just seeing making do by the sounds of things. I think you have to a lot of the time, and especially when you're working in conservation. <laughs> um, I also love hiking. So, you know, just being resourceful and, and being out in remote areas and, um, yeah, being able to look after yourself and have everything you need and um, mm. be prepared. But, mm. yeah, sometimes you just got to make do with what you got. <laughs> have you ever felt helpless when you know that the wildlife that you're working with is still being impacted and still government policy is not protecting it? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and and it started, you know, even at a much, much more local personal kind of scale as well. Um, I guess when I did my wildlife caring, for example, when I would be rescuing, you know, like a joey possum that has been mauled by a cat and it's still alive, but it's just its whole body is covered in scratches because it's been played with and there's no mm. fur left. And you, there's just no hope. Like these animals just died, of course, from stress and mm. you know, whatever else. Um, but the frustration that people don't take responsibility for their pets and that, like, if they could just see what, what they were doing and that it's great to have a cat, but, you know, be responsible for that cat and don't allow it to impact on wildlife. So mm. I felt this helplessness in relate, in sort of a many different many different angles. So it started off, I think, mainly around the, the cat side of things. Um, but then as I got more and more into conservation, I felt helpless when I was doing consulting work. And mm. I just was like, you can't, be, you can't be serious. This is an amazing place, an amazing ray of species. And 
unless I do something, like it's it's going to get bowled over. Um, mm. And then more recently with the, the forestry. So I think, you know, it's, it's very easy to feel helpless and it can happen at any scale, like national scale policy or your neighbour's cat, which we're having a problem with at the moment. So all our small birds have now gone mm. in our yard. Um, and, you know, we had we had um, white-browed scrub wrens and fairy wrens and thornbills and we get none of those anymore in our yard. Mm. So, yeah, helplessness is unfortunately very prevalent um, mm. as we as our environment gets more and more degraded. Mm. Mm. I am... Um... I had a cat, a cat up until August last year and I decided that once she passed away, I wasn't going to get another cat. Um, and it's been really interesting watching everything come back to the oh, garden. Wow. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I, I, I've I got two, two big black um, cats that free range next door to me. But I have a I have a Chihuahua who hates these cats. Now, she <laughs> she so she sees them. She's she's out there. The heckles are up, and she's ah, you know she's she's she chases them. She chases them off the front garden. She chases them off the back garden. If they're out the back, she chases them. And recently, I had a possum released in in, in a box that I had put in my tree. And what I noticed last night because I was up um, was that the possum was also taking no crap from these black cats either. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting because they, mm. they actually don't come into the back garden anymore. Mm. Maybe I need a chihuahua. <laughs> yeah, they're, 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 they are tenacious. And it's funny because they're, they're great big black moggies mm. and I reckon they're at least, like she's 2.25 kilos, I reckon they're at least five or six kilos <laughs> each. And she just, she's having none of it. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of wow. my car. Get off my lawn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, but I, because of the wildlife rescue that I've done, she's actually got really good at not chasing, not chasing animal, other animals. So she, if she sees birds, she just ignores them and watches them. If she sees the possum, she, the first time uh, the possum started grunting in the back garden, she was kind of like, what the, what, what the hell's that? And started barking. And I was like, it's okay. It's Bessie. It's fine. And she doesn't bark at her anymore. So it only took probably two or three days to yeah. to train the dog to accept, but it was about consistency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, dogs, dogs are also really bad. And yes, they are if they're not trained and looked after. I mean, when I was doing the lizards, I mean, the amount of times it was like, oh, no, I think it's okay. Mm-hmm. And you'd open the box and it's like, well, its back's not supposed to be a right angle. So probably not. Yeah. So, but it's it's interesting. So yeah, I've decided I got, I got rid of all the cat paraphernalia in my house, so I couldn't even be tempted to go to the local rescue and get another one. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the birds instead. Yeah, I do. I do. And we've got um, we've got we've got crows. We've got red water birds. We've got the um, probably ravens rather than crows, but um, magpies. We get the silver eyes. Um, I have a lemon myrtle tree in my garden, which oh, is beautiful. not not typically Canberran, but it's sort of protected by, protected, so it grows. And in the summer, um, I opened the back door and this cloud of silver eyes all dissipated because ah. they'd all come in for the for the blossoms. Well, they probably have migrated up from Tasmania as well, in fact. Yeah. There's a, they're, they're a fascinating species as well. They actually do this um, leapfrog migration as far as we know. Right. So, they, so, so some, um, you can actually tell why the amount of buff on the side of the bird there's a lot of orangey buff color okay. um and the ones from tassie i believe if i remember correctly have a more orange side and 
and they come up and then other ones from here will head a bit further north and but they don't all just shift in one thing they're really right. complex migration they're really, and they're and they're tiny as well and, yeah, they and are. um but common and really crucial you know for the mm. ecosystems and there's mm. like running around eating all these insects all the time and mm. um occasional berry as well yes. got to watch the blueberries with them <laughs> i don't have yeah I, i've never managed to grow blueberries so <laughs> But they did like my lemon myrtle tree, so I was kind of like, I need to get more lemon myrtle trees for next year. Yeah, so that's that's it's 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 wonderful to be able to encourage that into my garden. And you know, like I've gone out and I rent, but I've still gone out and spent like five hundred bucks on native plants so that I could put them in the in the in the borders and things so that they yeah. stay there when I go. Lovely. Um, because I think it's it's part of my it's part of my duty, um, you know, to to be helping as much as I can, especially because with Wild Talk, I'm not a member of any organisations because I think the, you know, my independence is really important to be able to offer that service to people. Yep. So being a member of a local, you know, wildlife group would pretty much destroy that because it would mean that anybody who wants to come to me from that organisation would already know who I am mm. and I'd know, the, I'd know the politics and yes. so I just... <laughs> It's quite nice to be able to step back from it, I have to say. Mm. Um, did you um, did you get a chance to read the report that came out earlier in the week? The environment report? Yeah. I, I haven't read it in detail, but I've certainly been, um, you know, having discussions with people about it. Um, all I can say is, you know, what a relief. Finally, a real report has come out um, and it's not been too sugar-coated. Um, I think previous reports, which I've been asked to contribute to for the Swift Parrot, um, mm. and I've just got you cannot you cannot say that this is actually having a positive like it, there's a positive influence here. There is no evidence that there is positiveness in relation to the Swift Parrot story, mm. and so um, I've seen reports before and been really disheartened that mm. they seem to be sugar coated because they're doing one thing or another, but in the reality, it wasn't making a difference. So it's really um, great to have a report that is real mm. and one that is, you know, really highlights the extent of um, the impacts of all of these different things that are happening, um, and despite what we claim to have. Been been doing it's all going downhill fast mm. um so I, I hope that that report and and others although they are dire are are a catalyst for change because um, mm. it seems that people don't really like to change unless they have to mm. yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately it seems to be human nature so um I, I I'm pleased to see it um and see it recognized but you know it's been it's been hidden for a while because oh, the news just... wasn't good so um it's great to have it out there and to have people talking about it um and to just like address the reality of what mm. we're living with right now because only when we address it can we then start to do something concrete mm. about it mm. absolutely do you feel because you are in very much in a business focused part of your life with your wildlife conservation now are you feeling are you feeling sort of good about the work that you're doing helping people across the world with that work yeah, look, it's it's actually been a really really great time for me because I I do feel quite like the work on swift parrots. I, I I'm still involved in a 
for a few more weeks at least that project's about to finish but um, I've been involved in a big conservation project protecting and restoring habitat for the swift parrot so that's been a really positive thing ongoing despite the negativity around forest policy etc we've been working with farmers um, and protecting and restoring habitat in those areas and it's been wonderful Mm. to connect with people on the land who are you know their primary producers and yet they're actually you know their faces light up when they see this endangered bird on on their woodland up at Mm. the back paddock you know Mm. um and I feel really privileged to have met the met these people um but yeah overall the swift parrot story is is just getting more and more bleak um as the as the population shrinks and so with the business I I now get to talk to people from literally every part of the world um about their conservation projects and what they're doing you know like this morning I was you know talking to someone about sloths in in um in Costa Rica actually. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got an email from a guy in South Africa um who's interested in trying to help prevent poaching and find um stolen cattle because cattle theft is a major problem over there. And mm. so these are the sorts of things that that our technology can help people with. And um and what we're doing at the moment is just like the tip of the iceberg of what what's possible for us to do. And so mm. I do feel like um yeah, and since I've been in the business, I feel like I've actually had more positive influence on conservation projects than I did as a researcher, in a way, because I can just my I can I guess scale up my my impact by mm. empowering other people to go and do things. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Just before we go, what um, what can individuals do to help um, help the swift parrots? So one thing they can do is um, first of all be aware of it. So find out a little bit about it. Um, and when I say that, um, you can just type in Swift Parrot. Um, you can look up the BirdLife Australia webpage um, to get see what it looks like. There's call recordings um, so you can listen to the call. And it's just a bit different to any of the other lorikeets, which might look similar, the very different call. But if you don't know whether or not, if there's lots of bird activity, lots of little honey eaters or lots of lorikeets, and you don't know if there's a Swift Parrot, you can actually just whip out your phone and do a voice recording. If you've got a voice recording app on your phone, just record the calls. Because mm-hmm. if you record the calls and you don't know, you can always send that to someone to to identify. You can send it to me if you like. <laughs> um, it, it, because that is by far the easiest way to find out if there's swift parrots somewhere. And mm. if you think you hear something that's a bit different, you can record that and then that captures it and you can we can get people to help you identify mm. what it is. And so that can be quite um, enabling, I guess, for people as well because it's like, okay, I don't know, I can't really tell, but I have a way of actually trying to find that out. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to my guest. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Nick for putting this together. I'd like to thank everybody who supports Wild Talk on Facebook and Instagram and who uses our services to support their mental health and well-being. Until next time, goodbye.